right, so I forgot in the announcements to talk about the children's choir. And so I'm going to, uh, in a moment, release the children to go back to the children's choir. You know they're going to be singing for us on Father's Day. And so we're, we're glad to have them uh, worship in this way and to sing about our God on Father's Day, which is a good day to worship God, as any other day is a good day to worship Him. But I do want to say this, that after the service this morning, parents, we'd like for you to immediately following the service to allow your children, who's in the children's choir, to come up on the stage so they can have one practice with the band. So please remember that. One practice with the band just immediately after the service. Now, the children's choir may be released. All right. So if you will open your Bibles with me to John chapter 3. John, the Gospel of John, chapter 3. We're going to start reading at verse 30. This is God's word for us today. I'm going to read from verse 30 of John, chapter 3, to verse 36. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Please be seated. Father in heaven, this is your word. We are glad that you have given it to us. Help us to receive your word today, to think about your word, to put it into practice in our lives, to, the, to be those who eat of your word and are sustained by it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, you know, I had a lot of difficulty trying to figure out where to start in this, with this particular passage. I went back and forth on whether I was gonna start in verse 36 because that's really what I want to get to is that verse. Or start at verse 30 where we started, or start somewhere else. And see, the problem is that verse 30 is kind of in the middle of something, or at, right at the end of something. It's kind of in the middle of the context of the whole thing. But you wouldn't want to hear me talk for a long time and go over all the stuff that's in there. And so I finally decided, settled on verse 30, even though verse 30 is at the end of what John the Apostle is quoting from John the Baptist. But I think it's important as we make our way to verse 36 to understand how it is that this statement that John the Baptist makes and how John the Apostle uh, talks about or give us a full under, fuller understanding of that statement. And so uh, that passage in verse 30, that verse in verse 30 says this, he must increase, but I must decrease. John the Baptist makes this statement after his disciples come to them, after they had had a discussion with a Jew and someone like a Pharisee or a, or a Sadducee about purification because they had been baptizing and so were the Jews baptizing or cleansing, and they had seen Jesus doing the same thing, and they came to John the Baptist telling him about Jesus baptizing. And the scripture says it wasn't really Jesus who was doing the baptizing, but his disciples that were baptizing. And so John explains to them the situation, and he makes this statement that he must increase and I must decrease. So John the Baptist knew the purpose of his ministry and that the prominence of his ministry 
was at the point where it was time for it to decrease because he was fulfilling the purpose for which he had come into this world. I want to go back a little bit into uh, John chapter 1, where John begins to uh, make a statement about himself. Some people had come to see John, and they had asked him what it is that he says about himself. And they said, what do you say about yourself? And he says this, in John chapter 1, verse 33, he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. He was quoting the passage out of Isaiah. See, John knew what his purpose was, that he was the one who was to prepare the hearts of people so that when the Messiah came, they would be ready to receive him. He was the one to help them by proclaiming repentance to the people. He stated as his ministry, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he went around telling people what it is that they needed to do or answering their questions. And he baptized people to show that they were being cleansed, that they were, uh, that they were, they were demonstrating that they were cleansed, that they had indeed repented. So he understood what his ministry was. He was the one who was to cry out to everyone to prepare the way. You know, in Malachi, it talks about, at the end of Malachi, it talks about Elijah returning. And it says that Elijah will come before the great and terrible day of the Lord to turn the hearts of the Father to the children and turn the hearts of the children to the Father. And Jesus had said this about John the Baptist. He had said that Elijah had already come, again referring to John the Baptist. So this is what John the Baptist was doing, and he understood that it, that was his ministry, to do that very thing, to make it so that people would be ready when the Messiah would come, lest they be smoked and destroyed. Another thing that he says about himself, or actually he makes this testimony about Jesus in verse 29 of chapter 1. He saw Jesus coming toward him, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And continue on, he says, after me, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. You see, he, he understands again that not only is he to be the voice, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Messiah to come, for Jesus to come, but he is the one who's to baptize people so that Jesus might be revealed to the people. The people needed to turn to God so that God would be delighted to send his son. And John the Baptist understood that that was his role, that that was his role to do that thing. You know, it's important for, for us that, that we understand that that was his role because John, in doing what he did, made it so that Jesus would come. And we understand why Jesus would come. Maybe, we, maybe some of us don't understand why he came. The problem started a long time ago in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And when they disobeyed God, they essentially said, God, your way is not the way we seek to go. Your command is not the command we seek to follow. We seek to do our own thing. And that made a breach between humanity and God, a breach that humanity could not repair itself. Only God can repair that breach, a breach that would call, cause humanity to be separated from God, not just in this life on the earth, but forever. But God had determined to, to make a way so that that breach could be mended, that breach could be healed. And he sent his son in order to be able to do that. His own son, Jesus Christ. We understand the gospel to be that Christ died for our sins and he was buried. And he rose on the third day. In 1 Corinthians, it speaks about that. But that's what happened. It was this one Jesus, whom John was preparing the way, from, preparing the way for, who needed to come. So that we could even sit in this place today and know God and worship him. Because Jesus is the one who repairs the breach for us. He is the one who makes peace 
between us and God. Because when that sin occurred, war began between us and God. God did not start the war. Humanity started the war. And we were born into that situation where we were at war with God. And so Jesus takes care of that for us. He died to pay the penalty for our sins. And so that those who believe in him could have forgiveness of their sins because Jesus would be their substitute. Jesus would take up on the wrath that God would dish out to them so that they wouldn't have to take upon his wrath. And not only would he do that, he would make it so that there would be peace between us for those who believe in God so that now a relationship, even better than the original one between Adam and Eve and God, a relationship could be had and that relationship being an eternal relationship with God. So it was important, the work that John the Baptist was doing in setting this up. And he, later on in this same section, he says this. He says this. He saw the spirit descend and remain on Jesus. And he was, uh, and uh, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And, and John says, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the son of God referring to Jesus as the son of God. And so you can imagine that when John sees Jesus on the scene and Jesus and his disciples are baptizing and Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom, uh, the gospel of the kingdom, when Jesus is also saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that John can see that his ministry needs to, the prominence of his ministry is to diminish because the one in whom he came to prepare the way for is here. The one who came to prayer for is here. And so, uh, because that one is here, then the thing is for those who recognize him as being here is for them to believe. So if we go back to this, he must increase, but I must decrease. Now that was the words of John the Baptist. Now it's another John that we're going to look at his words. Because this John, John the Apostle, helps us to understand better why John the Baptist even states that. Why he states that he must increase. He tells us five things. These five things are found in verses 31 through 35. First, he tells us that Jesus comes from above and is above all. And so John the Baptist understands that he must diminish he must decrease because the one who is there now is above everyone. He comes from above. That is, he comes from heaven. And he is above everyone. He is superior to everyone. And what's the everyone we're talking about here? We're talking about those who would be in the service to God, like the prophets. John the Baptist was a prophet. He was a great prophet. Jesus said there was no greater man born to women on the earth than John the Baptist. He was a great prophet. And he was saying that, because he is from above. He is superior to everyone. And if he's superior to everyone, then there's no reason for John the Baptist to try to, um, to continue his ministry in the same fashion that he had previously, because the one who is superior to him has come. It tells us in that verse as well, he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks an earthly way. And so the prophets, they're of the earth. They were born of the earth, not from heaven even though they speak the truth of God's word, even though they do that, they still speak it from an earthly perspective. They speak it from a human perspective. But Jesus, because he is above all and superior to all, when he speaks the word of God, he speaks from a heavenly perspective. You remember uh, when Jesus was speaking in Matthew chapter 7, those people were amazed because he spoke such authority. They'd never heard anybody speak like that before. How is it that Jesus spoke with such authority? It's because Jesus is above all. He is superior to even all those prophets who came down. And so that's the first thing. Jesus comes from above. The second thing that, um, that John the Apostle tells us, and the reason why John the Baptist understands that he must decrease and that Jesus must increase is because Jesus bears witness to what he has seen and heard. 
Jesus from above, he has seen, haven't he? He's seen the Father. He has heard things. He gives personal testimony about God. Personal testimony. He tells about who God is, what God has commanded, what God wants. He is the one who knows all of those things. And so this is important to understand as well because John is telling us this because these things impact what we think about Jesus. These things uh, uh, affect how we're going to handle Jesus, what our opinion is going to be about Jesus. If we know that Jesus comes from above and is above all, all, that says something about him, his position. That says something about uh, the things that he said. If he bears witness to what he's seen and heard, we ought to take it to heart when he speaks about things because he gives direct testimony about everything that he speaks about. He gives direct testimony. The third thing that he says, Jesus was sent by God and utters the words of God. Now, if Jesus was sent by God, direct mission from him, and he utters the words of God again, that should tell us that he's uttering the words of God. Those words are words that we ought to pay attention to. Every one of them. That we ought to take to heart. That we ought to put priority on those words. That we ought not let those words just pass by us. Or like we say, go in one ear and come out the other ear. Go in one ear, come out the other, which, whichever ear you prefer for things to go into. We ought not let that be so if he speaks the words of God. And John tells us elsewhere that Jesus says, I only speak what my father tells me. I only do what I see my father doing. So everything that Jesus did was because of what the father had given to him. And what he's seen the Father do, because he bore witness uh, to what he's seen and heard, he only spoke about those things, and those things are things that, uh, that John recognized, because Jesus being the one who he is, John understood, it's time for me to decrease, because the one whom, who I came for in the very first place, he is here now. And so people need to pay attention to him, to him. The fourth thing that he says is Jesus has the fullness of the Spirit of God. He, said, he says this here, for God gives the Spirit without measure to Jesus. Now, as believers, we know that God has given the Spirit to us. He's given us giftedness and abilities, but not one of us has every gift of the Spirit. We, we have at least one, those of us who believe, we may have more than one gift of the Spirit. And we may have a certain manifestation or the way we display that gift or use that gift, and that may not even be to the extent it could be if more power was given to us to use that giftedness. But that's not so with Jesus. It's not so. It's the fullness of the Spirit that is in him. There is nothing he is lacking in that regard. And so certainly, if the fullness of the Spirit is in him, who would ever have heard of such a thing like that? The Jews at that time, they knew that people had the Spirit upon them. They knew that when they were building the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle and all those things, the Spirit of God came upon certain people. The Spirit of God came upon two men, and they were the ones who were directing that whole thing. And he showed them, taught them how to build things exactly the way God the Father wanted them built. But they didn't have the fullness of the Spirit, but this Jesus does. And John knew, because Jesus was that person, again, that he must de decrease and that Jesus must increase. You also know that people should believe in Jesus. Jesus is the one in whom people should focus their attention upon, focus their faith upon. And the fifth things that he mentions, he says in verse 35, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. Jesus is loved by the father. Two times that I remember anyway, two times in the scripture, 
we hear God say something. Jesus was baptized. And the dove, the Holy Spirit comes down upon him as a dove. We hear a voice from heaven, the scripture says, that says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And a second time, when Peter, James, and John went with Jesus on the, what's called the Mount of Transfiguration, they were there, and they saw Jesus in his glory light up. And they saw Moses and uh, Elijah there as well in their glory. They saw him there. It's interesting. They'd never seen him before, but they recognized him immediately, though. They recognized him with Moses and Elijah, this glory. And, and Peter said some things, and then they hear a voice from heaven again. said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And so we know that Jesus is indeed loved by the Father. Jesus did everything that was pleasing to God the Father. And so these five things, it's the reason why John the Baptist says that he must increase, but I must decrease. And John the Apostle makes it known to us that he expands upon that by telling us these things so we would know what John the Baptist was thinking or what he, was, uh, what he understood in making that statement. But he also wanted us to understand some things about Jesus as well because he makes these statements and then he gets to verse 36. It says in verse 36, two statements. And I think these statements reveal the destiny of persons who exist in a particular state or condition with regards to Jesus. That is, it's two conditions, two states that people exist in. And I use this word state intentionally, that people exist in with regards to Jesus. And I think he shows us these two states in verse 36. And the first one is, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And the second one is in the rest of verse, who Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And so I just read these out of the English Standard Version translation, which is the translation that I use. And that translation uses the words whoever. And whoever just basically means uh, any person, no matter who he or she is, that performs the action of the verb. Now, you know, I, I don't really want to get into grammar, but I think I need to so, so that can, you can understand the point that I'm trying to make here when I say what I'm going to say. Uh, other translations like the King James Version, the New King James, the New American Standard Bible, instead of saying whoever, they say things like the one who or he who. And I, I think those are better ways of translating this particular, uh, this particular word from the Greek. The Greek word here, in both of those cases, whoever believes and whoever does not obey, both of them are uh, participles. They are, and participles have, have a comp or, or what's called verbal adjectives. They have a verbal aspect and an adjectival aspect. They, they, they can describe action on a verb, like uh, when something happens uh, with, a verb, with a verbal action, or they can describe something about a noun. And I think in this case, it's doing just that. It's talking about describing, it's being used in an adjectival sense, describing a noun, and that noun is the person. And I think it's, it better, it gives, it better helps us to understand what John is trying to uh, emphasize here using the translation, if, I'm sorry, uh, he who or the one who. For one, I think it's because whoever kind of gives us this uh, generic uh, idea about um, anyone, uh, and that's the focus, whoever, and, 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 it's whoever believes. The focus begins to be on whoever it is that does what, that believes. And that's the focus of this whoever, that he believes. 
I don't think that John is trying to get, trying to focus on the believing aspect here. I think he's trying to focus on the person. The person. I'll give you an example. Because I may not have explained it very well right now, but I'll give you an example. And I asked my wife to make sure that she was sitting in that spot today. And I know she normally sits there, but she could have been in nursery or something like that and not showed up, then I wouldn't be able to use this. So if I made a statement like, my wife, uh, or the one, the person who is sitting in the, in the first pew directly in front of me is my wife. And so you understand what I'm saying. As I, even though I pointed to her, couldn't help but do that. I said the person who is sitting. I use that verbal term, who is sitting. That is important to describe the particular person that I'm talking about. Because if I just said the person is my wife, I'm like, what person are you talking about? But if I say the person who is sitting or who sits in the pew directly in front of me, then you understand because it describes the person that I'm referring to. The emphasis is not on that she's sitting in the pew in front of me. The emphasis is the person that is my wife because that's what I'm really trying to communicate to you, who my wife is. Not that she's sitting in the pew in front of me, but I have to use that to describe who she is so that you know the person I'm talking about. And I think that's what's happening in this passage. John is trying to describe the person who believes. His emphasis is on the person, but he has to use believe, who believes, so that you understand the person that he's talking about. And I think he does want us to understand that it's individuals, not so much whoever. In the Gospel of John, and the ESV is translated with the word whoever in a lot of places. And uh, you can read a, a passage like this and think, okay, he's calling us to believe when he says this. He's calling us to believe. That's not really what he's emphasizing right here. Don't get me wrong. He does call us to believe, but that's not really what he's emphasizing right here. He's emphasizing the state that the person is in. And so in this first one, 36a, when he says, Instead of saying whoever believes, if we say the one who believes in the Son has eternal life, then we say, okay, the one who is in this state of belief is the one who has eternal life. The one who exists in this state of believing has eternal life. In the second part, the one who does not obey the Son what is the, what's the distinction about this one? He doesn't obey the son. So we know who he's talking about. The one who does not obey the son shall not see life. I think that's the emphasis. I think that's the emphasis because he wants us when we read that, when we hear this word, to not think about whoever or anybody, but to think about ourselves. When I read this, to think about me and to ask myself the question, am I the person who believes in the Son? Can I be described that way? Or am I the person who disobeys the Son? See, that's what I, want, that's what I think he wants us to understand. Not calling us, not calling me to believe or stressing the action of the verb of believing or of disobeying. But to think, am I one who believes? Or am I one who disobeys? Do I exist in that state? Do I live a life where I believe, that I show I believe? Or do I live a life where I show that I'm disobedient to God? So that's what I think he's trying to get at to us. Uh, what he's trying to communicate to us. And so when I see this, whoever, in these passages like this, and there's other places where it's there as well, see, I think the better translation is the one who, because I think that really hits where it needs to hit. 
helps us to understand better uh, what John is trying to communicate here. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it is true that whoever believes in the Son, that is true. If you take all the human beings in the world, you can say, out of any of you, whoever of you believes in the Son will have eternal life. That's a true statement. It certainly is a true statement. But anybody could easily just overlook that whoever because they don't think that really, they don't really have to think about themselves. But the one who, or he who, because it is a singular, he, have to, I hope we think about ourselves. Am I the one that's in this? Does this talk about me? This is expresses this about me. So let's talk a little bit more about this first. Whoever believes in the Son, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life. That's a present tense verb, has. And that's the main verb of this particular statement. Has eternal life. Eternal life is something that the person has right now. Right now. And, and, and the way you can have eternal life in this life, the one who believes in the Son, the one who has put his faith in Jesus, is, is assured that he is indeed the Son of God, who believes in his words that he says and practices those teachings, the one who's put their confidence in his work on the cross, that his work on the cross did indeed pay the penalty for my sin. And because of that, I have been forgiven if I trust Jesus and that I will be with God forever. The one who believes that thing, that's the one who has eternal life right now. Don't have to wait till we die until this body is gone. Eternal life is that which you have which you have right now. See, that's what I think he's trying to stress. That's what you have right now. And what is eternal life? I mean, we kind of understand what this life is like. We don't like the things in this life because it's full of difficulty, trouble, and turmoil. That's because God is just keeping his word in that regard. He told Adam that the that if you eat the fruit from the tree, you will die. Certainly, Adam died spiritually. He was separated from God spiritually, even though he continued to live physically. But he told him the consequences of that, that he's going to curse the ground. And essentially, the ground is going to fight against him. Everything's going to fight against him. It's going to be hard to live life, to get food to eat, to do the things that you would do because everything's going to fight against you. The creation is going to fight against you because God does not want anybody to prosper in their sin. So he couldn't let them have a life in the Garden of Eden. And they feel like, oh, well, shucks, it doesn't matter whether I sin or not. I still enjoy this great existence. No, that wouldn't be the case. And he told Eve that she would have pain and increased pain in childbearing and that her husband's going to rule over her because she's going to try to rule over him. All those kinds of things. All those are consequences. And that's why life is so difficult because God is just keeping his word that he would cause those things to be so. And so we understand this life, but the eternal life he's talking about is not those things in this life. It's a life of peace and joy with him. It's a life of comfort with him. It's a life of reliance upon him, seeing his power and being happy with him. It's a life of when I say peace, not fighting, not warring against God because we were there before. It's a life of that, not warring against him, not questioning God, doubting him, and uh, refusing to, to uh, or resisting him in his ways. It's not that kind of life. It's a life where we don't do those things. It's eternal life, a life where there will be no more sin, a life where there will be all joy. There will be no more pain or suffering, no more lying or cheating, no more disappointment, no more hurt, none of those things, no more death. That's the eternal life, life with God. That's the only real life there is. Anything outside of that, he doesn't call life. It's just existence, but it's not existence with him. And so the second statement he makes, 
The one who does not obey the son shall not see life. See, the, the thing that stuck, stuck, stuck out to me with regards to this, because he didn't use the opposite of the verb to believe. He didn't say the one who does not believe in God, because that would seem to be the, the thing that you might expect to hear, that the one who does not believe. Uh, because he says the one who believes, you'd expect to hear the one who does not believe, but he says the one who does not obey. And that, that word there means just that, does not obey. Disobedience or uh, uh, failure to conform, to comply, that kind of thing. And I thought, why did he use that word? And it seems here he's, he's making a connection between believing and obeying. Elsewhere in John, previously, he talks about believing the person who believes and the one who does not believe. But he chose not to use that here. And so there is indeed a connection between the one who does not believe and the actions of the one who does not believe. Because the one who does not believe ultimately just does not obey. Not obey. But the one who is in that state shall not see life. What is it that the one who does not obey does? They don't believe in the words of Jesus. All these things that we spoke about, about Jesus being superior, about Jesus giving the words of God. They pay no attention to that. It doesn't matter to, to him. Those things aren't important to him or her. Uh, the scripture and looking at it and the commands that God gives, the instructions that he gives to those who are his people, they don't like those instructions. They think those instructions maybe have been given by human beings because those instructions are against what they want to do or what they feel like is good or right. You know, probably all of us have been there to one degree or another as we have grown in our understanding of who God is and in our sanctification. You know, some things we read in the scripture, boy, they hit us the wrong way. And sometimes they hit us really hard the wrong way. And we have to struggle to get to the place where we need to be praying and asking God, but those who who are in this state of disbelief, don't, don't care about that. They just dismiss it all. They just dismiss it all. But they're the ones who shall not see life. And so what, they don't cease to exist, as some believe. They don't cease to exist, so what do they do? They exist, but they won't experience life with God. They'll experience life without God. They will be eternally separated from him. Do you know that every single human being on the earth now does not experience that? Certainly they have life without God, but they don't experience the way they will once they die. Because God, the scripture tells us God, um, he allows the rain to fall on the unjust and on the just. He does good things to people. He is merciful. He even tells us in Luke elsewhere, that we are to do what to our enemies, that we're to love our enemies, to do good to those who hate us, to bless those who curse us, to pray for those who mistreat us. Then he gives examples of, of how we ought to do that thing, and he says to be merciful. To who? To those who hate us, to those who mistreat us. He says be merciful to them. Why? Because God is merciful to the unjust and the unrighteous. So he does good things for them all the time. He does good things for them. And yet, they still reject him, still choose to disobey him. They shall not have life with him. Even though he, they're already separated from him, the life that they will have is one where they don't even get those good things anymore. Jesus tells us a story about a, a rich uh, a rich man, and Lazarus, that's what we know it by. And what we know about the rich man is he asked Abraham to send Lazarus over to dip his finger in some water just so that a drop of it might touch his tongue. Couldn't even get a drop of water. That's the kind of separation we're talking about. There's no comfort, no mercy, no compassion. 
That's the kind of separation. And worse than that, because God tells us here that while that person shall not see life, then he says, but the wrath of God remains on him. We don't talk much about the wrath of God. Um, it's the wrath of God is scary. <laughs> God's anger uh, against sin and wickedness. It's, it's a frightening thing. But here he tells us, but the wrath of God remains on him. And I, and I thought that was interesting as well, because he said it remains on him. So it's not like uh, the person heard about Jesus, because really we are talking about people who have heard about Jesus in this passage. We're talking about people who have heard about him. It's not like the person heard about Jesus and said, ah, no, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. And God's wrath came upon them because they did not want to have, because they didn't choose Jesus. They had the opportunity to choose Jesus, but they didn't choose Jesus. And so now God's wrath is upon them. No, that's not the case. They had the opportunity to choose Jesus and they didn't choose Jesus. God's wrath is still on them because God's wrath was on them in the beginning. And why was God's wrath on them in the beginning? Because we were all born into sin. The scripture tells us that uh, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because we all were born into sin, uh, we came out of the womb, sinners, infants, sinners. We grew up, sinners. And then we began to show that we were sinners by the things that we did. And what does a sinner do? A sinner rebels against God, fights against God. That's what a sinner does. A sinner says, my way is the way. I am the way, the sinner says, not Jesus being the way. I am the way, the sinner says. That's what the sinner does. And because the sinner has that kind of attitude toward God, God's wrath is on the sinner. God, the, in Romans, it tells us that God's wrath is being revealed against, is being revealed, that is presently against all the ungodliness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So they understood the truth, but because they're sinners, they suppress it because they don't want to have anything to do with God. And we were raised that way. We were born up in this culture. We were formed to the image of the world, of society. We were formed that way. And so it's not a new thing that God's wrath comes upon the person who rejects Jesus God's wrath is on the person from the very beginning. What Jesus does is provide a means by which the wrath of God may be removed from you if you believe in him. His wrath can be taken from you because Jesus himself took the wrath of God that you deserve. If you don't believe, if you don't obey Jesus, then you should expect judgment from God. You should expect his wrath to be upon you. Now, somebody might ask a question. You may ask a question uh, like, okay, if these people that he's talking about here are the people whom have heard this message about Jesus and they have believed or, or they are in the state of belief because they've heard it or the state of disobedience because they heard and rejected Jesus. What about those people who've never heard? I mean, there's a lot of people who don't hear about Jesus, right? There's a lot of people. But what about them? How can they believe in whom they have never heard of, or how can they obey whom they don't know anything about? How can they do that? I mean, I think that's a good question. I mean, some of us struggle with that, right? With somebody in some remote place that has never heard the gospel and they live and, and then they die. And it's kind of hard for us to think that God's going to throw them in hell. Kind of hard for us to think that. And then after hell, because hell is just a, it's just a holding spot, right? I mean, hell is the place where there's darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, where there's darkness so thick you can feel it, where the worm never dies. I mean, the Bible describes hell as that way. But that's just the place where you go where a person goes who doesn't believe, who, who, who disobeys God, right after they die, they go there. The body's still on the ground, but their soul and their spirit is there, being tormented until the day of judgment comes. The day of judgment is like a court case. You know, hell is like going to jail. You committed a crime, you get caught, you go to jail, waiting for 
the court date. And then when the court date comes, the judgment of God, you're already guilty. But he shows you that you're guilty. He opens the books and he shows you all the deeds that you've done. Whether you thought they were good or bad, they all turn out to be bad. They all turn out to be bad because none of them were done for Jesus. For those who don't believe, they all are bad deeds. And then he takes that, shows you that you're guilty. Then he throws you into the lake of fire. Eternal damnation. Throws a person to so, And it's hard for us to think that people who have not heard the God, that they will undergo that type of thing because they didn't even have a chance. It's hard for us to think that. And I think Paul addresses this question about what happened. How can these people believe whom they've never heard of, or how can they obey whom they've never known anything about? I, I believe they address that in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, is where it starts. So listen to it. It's for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach? They have sent. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So, all is saying that God must send someone to preach the good news of Jesus in order for a person to hear about Jesus and to believe Jesus and be saved. God must send somebody. Send somebody, and that person must preach. And the person, uh, the one that's preaching, the one who's listening must hear it so that, and then believe it, and then they'll be saved. It has to happen that way. So if a person never hears the good news of Jesus, perhaps it's because the good news of Jesus was never sent to that person. But in either case, if he never hears the good news of Jesus, a person cannot believe in Jesus, and therefore can be saved. It may be a difficult statement. God has no obligation. There's no obligation to send his word to anybody. There's no obligation to do that. God sends his word out for his glory and for his purposes. When he sends his words out, he sends people out. And he sends people out for his glory, for his purposes. Because God will be glorified in those in whom he saves and in those whom he does not save. He will be glorified in that. And I know it's hard to think about that. But if, it's, if a person never hears, then they can't be saved. Because the way of salvation comes through Jesus only. For he says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. That nobody comes to the Father. Nobody gets in a relationship with him. Nobody gets close to him without Jesus. Without Jesus. Consider this, that the person who has never heard the good news of Jesus does not have a problem with not believing in Jesus. It is not even on his or her radar to believe in Jesus. Because the concept of believing in Jesus is foreign to that person or even unheard of to that person. And so we often think that that person might be interested, but the person doesn't have a problem not believing in Jesus. They're okay. We already established that everybody's born sinners and born in rebellion in our hearts toward God. And as we grow up, as I describe more, we just naturally display more and more of our rejection and rebellion toward God in our thoughts, in our words, in our behaviors, and in our actions. Therefore, the person who has never heard the good news of Jesus just remains in the state of existence which he or she has always known and is accustomed to and is even comfortable with. They just remain in that state that they've always known. That's just the way it is with them. They're accustomed to it, and they're comfortable with it. 
They're not angry or upset because they haven't had the opportunity to believe in Jesus. The state that they're in is under the wrath of God. And so even as we continue in this passage in Romans, we see that it's not so much talking about uh, the person who has not heard, as I mentioned previously, and therefore has not believed, but the person who has heard does not believe. That's what he's getting at. And so listen as I continue reading in Romans 10 uh, and verse 16. Don't have much left. I know it's getting tight. But they have not obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So to those of you who believe in the Son, give praise, honor, and glory to God the Father and Jesus Christ his Son, because you have eternal life. But to those of you who do not obey the Son, how long do you think that God will hold out his hands to you, a disobedient and contrary people? Someone has been sent. The good news of Jesus has been preached. You have heard. Now believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that you may be saved from the wrath of God. Father in heaven, your words are the words of life. It is you who delivers, it is you who saves, it is you who promises, is you who fulfills. We thank you, Lord, for the word that you have given to us. We pray, Lord God, that your word will have its effect in us today. In Jesus' name, amen.